Jim Fucci sat at his console in the bowels of the tracking vessel Coastal Sentry, waiting for any indication that Gemini 8 was overhead. The spacecraft had been in a dead zone for quite some time, since losing contact with the Madagascar tracking station, but they should have been drawing into range at any moment. Finally, the spacecraft appeared. Jim and his fellow controllers expected to see one craft, a Gemini capsule and an Agena docking target coupled together as a single vehicle. But there were two distinct signals detected overhead. The first, the Agena, was rock-steady. But the other signal, surely the Gemini, was behaving erratically. The signal flashed on and off, on and off. The coastal sentry was detecting the signal, but only in waves. That certainly wasn't normal, and it was more than a little concerning. But what could be happening up there that would cause a signal like that? Terror gripped the hearts of those aboard the ship as the reality of the situation became clear. The signal was flashing on and off because the Gemini capsule and the two astronauts who crewed it were spinning out of control. Welcome to Episode 29 of Frontier of Infinity. Emergency. When we last left off, NASA and the United States had enjoyed a titanic victory with the joint flight of Geminis 6 and 7. With a last-minute double launch, Frank Borman, James Lovell, Wally Schirra, and Tom Stafford successfully carried out the first-ever orbital rendezvous and proved NASA capable of pulling off one of the most critical skills that would be needed for an eventual moonshot. Gemini 7 then remained aloft for a few more days, stretching their mission duration out to nearly two full weeks, setting a fresh endurance record. NASA had overcome a massive hurdle and were riding high, ready to take on the next challenge. In this episode, we're going to cover the flight of Gemini 8, which would be the first to make a docking attempt in orbit. The crew of Gemini 8 was the excellent combination of Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott, both of whom joined NASA in the early 60s after the Mercury 7. They had been selected to serve as the crew of Gemini 8 as far back as September of 1965, long before even Gemini 76 flew, but that gave them a decent window in which to prepare for the impending mission. Neil Armstrong, probably the most famous astronaut of all time, was born in Wapakoneta, Ohio, in August of 1930. Armstrong went on to join the Navy in 1949, where he served as an aviator, eventually leaving the military in 1952 to work for the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, the precursor to NASA. NACA metamorphosed into NASA shortly after he joined, but he stayed on with the organization and served as an engineer as well as a test pilot, eventually coming to fly the fabled X-15, which we covered in a previous episode. In 
This rocket-propelled airplane was capable of flying right up to the liminal of space, and it gave Armstrong his first brush with the infinite frontier. He would fly over 200 varieties of aircraft before he was finally selected to serve as an astronaut in 1962, which would put him firmly on the road to the moon. Dave Scott was a son of San Antonio, Texas, having been born in 1932. He attended the U.S. Military Academy and received a Bachelor's of Science. From there, it was the Air Force for Scott, where he trained to become a test pilot. To further his education all the more, he attended the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and received a degree in aeronautical and astronautical engineering. The very next year, Scott was selected to join the Astronaut Corps with the third class, which was selected in 1963. It was NASA's hope that Gemini 8 would not only serve as a testing ground for docking, but also as one in which they could examine the function of some new gadgets which had been developed on the ground. One of these was the Extravehicular Life Support System, otherwise known as an ELSS, and a related device called the Extravehicular Support Package, or ESP. These two machines could be mounted to a spacesuit in order to supply life support during extravehicular activity, or a spacewalk. NASA was hoping to get in another one after Ed White's spacewalk back on Gemini 4. The ELSS was a boxy device which would be mounted to the astronaut's chest and would feed oxygen into the spacesuit from one of a variety of sources. A line could be connected to the suit from the spacecraft or from a small emergency supply stored in the chest pack itself. Finally, the oxygen could be supplied from the ESP, which was much larger than the ELSS and would be worn as a backpack. The ESP was almost like a little spacecraft all its own. It contained not only a supply of oxygen, but also a radio for communications, as well as a decent stock of fuel for the handheld zip gun that the astronauts could use to maneuver while outside their capsule. The zip gun had received some upgrades since it was last used on Gemini 4, and would hopefully be more useful in its current iteration. What was more, the ESP could allow an astronaut wearing it a good deal more freedom to move, as it contained an extension for the supply tether that would keep the astronaut connected to the spacecraft and provisioned with breathable oxygen. Under the new system, an astronaut could conceivably venture as far as 98 feet, or about 30 meters from the spacecraft. The one to make the spacewalk would be Dave Scott. He spent much time preparing for it, completing no fewer than 300 parabolic flights in a special training aircraft designed to simulate weightlessness as closely as could be done within the atmosphere, as well as training on an air-cushioned surface which would imitate the frictionless nature of a spacewalk as closely as could be done. This allowed him to acclimate himself to the sensation and get a feel for the use of the zip gun practicing how to get himself moving, as well as how to successfully stop in microgravity. Five months passed between the flight of Gemini 76 and the launch of Gemini 8. This time, Scott and Armstrong would fly alone. This was a one-capsule mission. Their docking target would be another modified Agena stage, which had been produced expressly to serve that purpose. 
it would be launched first, burn into a docking orbit, and then be followed by Gemini 8. On March 16, 1966, the Agena left the pad at Cape Canaveral and reached orbit easily. Then the onboard engine fired and lifted the docking target into a circular orbit at an altitude of 186 miles overhead. Finally, there was an Agena in orbit just waiting for a Gemini to come along and dock. Forty minutes after the Agena had started skyward, Gemini 8 followed suit, lifting free of Pad 19 to pursue their quarry above. They reached orbit without any problems and set to work tracking and catching the Agena. They were over a thousand miles behind it. To start, Armstrong set to work adjusting the capsule's orbital path, firing the thrusters to lower their apogee, or the highest point in their orbit. But as the thrusters burned, a problem became apparent. When he commanded that they cut off, they didn't shut down all at once as they should have. Instead, they continued to provide thrust for a short period afterward, which interfered with his calculations as the spacecraft had braked harder than he had intended. This didn't cause any panic, even though there was no way to be certain exactly what had caused the problem. A second burn later on, intended to increase the capsule's velocity, suffered from the same issue, but it didn't affect the flight enough to cause any serious issues. A number of further adjustments were made to the flight path, bringing the orbital inclination in line with that of the target, and increasing the capsule's speed. Then the first radar contact pinged. From a distance of 206 miles, about 331 kilometers, the Gemini's radar suite picked up the Agena riding ahead. One more flight path adjustment brought the Gemini's speed up again, and Gemini 8 was slowly gaining on the Agena, facilitated by an orbit 17 miles, or about 27 kilometers, below their target. Hours slipped by as the chase continued, Gemini 8 slinking up on the Agena until they were positioned properly underneath. With the Agena riding 10 degrees above the Gemini, Armstrong made ready to execute a translation maneuver which would bring his spacecraft and the target in line with one another. He pitched the Gemini's nose up 31.3 degrees and also nudged it to the left. And with three careful firings of the thrusters, he brought his Gemini capsule to a halt relative to the Agena target. It was the second orbital rendezvous in history. Before they could dock, though, the astronauts needed to inspect the target to make sure that it wasn't oscillating or behaving strangely. Even a small course deviation could result in catastrophe. Scott and Armstrong gently moved their capsule around the target, examining it from multiple angles, ensuring that it flew straight as an arrow through space. Once they had confirmed that it would be safe to approach, the Capcom on a tracking ship down below, known as the Rose Knot, gave them the go-ahead to commence docking. But everything was not entirely normal. While Armstrong and Scott had been working up to the Agena and carrying out their survey, the control center in Houston had been at work piping commands up to the Agena, though there had been some issues communicating with it. The Agena's attitude control system was supposed to take over once the Gemini was docked with it, and it had been given a series of commands to execute once the docking was complete. 
This was all part of a new program by which commands prepared at Houston were sent out to the overseas tracking stations before they were shot up to the Agena. To ensure that the Agena's computer system had properly received and logged the instructions, an error-seeking routine was built into the system, by which confirmation signals would be sent back down to the ground so that the information received by the Agena could be checked against the information transmitted from Houston. But no confirmation came from the spacecraft. This could have been a problem with the confirmation signal itself, or it could have been an indication that the commands had not been properly received or understood. In the event that this auto-check failed, it was possible to perform a manual review of the transmitted code in comparison to the code beamed earthward as telemetry from the Agena, but this was a labor-intensive process that could take hours. Regardless, there was a distinct possibility that the Agena would not operate as planned once the docking was completed. Jim Lovell, who was working as Capcom in Houston, was patched into the capsule's radio line by the tracking station in Madagascar, and he informed Armstrong that there could be trouble with the attitude control once the docking was successful. He advised Armstrong that if the spacecraft began to behave strangely, he should switch off the Agena's attitude control system, switch the Geminis back on, and then use the capsule's thrusters to correct any deviations. With this warning fresh in mind, Armstrong and Scott began their approach with the Agena, literally inching forward, edging closer to the docking assembly at a blistering speed of three inches per second. It was critical that the Gemini not come in too quickly, lest it slam into the Agena and damage both spacecraft, as well as run the risk of knocking them off course. Armstrong radioed distances back down to Earth as the Gemini crept closer. Under the guide of an adept hand, the Gemini slid up to the Agena, and like two shy strangers shaking hands, their docking assemblies met, and the two spacecraft were joined as one. Armstrong reported to the ground that the process was smooth throughout, and that there were no discernible oscillations in either craft. There was a moment of stillness in Houston before cheers split the air, and the celebrations began. It was another huge victory for NASA. Now that the two spacecraft were joined together, Dave Scott issued a command to the Agena to use its own thrusters to turn both spacecraft to the right. This directive was carried out swiftly and efficiently. Heartened by this success, Scott prepared to issue a second order, but before he could enter it into the computer, he glanced at the instrument panel and realized that something wasn't right. The attitude control indicator read that they were canted 30 degrees relative to the Earth's surface below, when they should have been perfectly horizontal. Puzzled, Scott looked out of the window, but they were over the night side of the Earth, resulting in nothing but reaching blackness down below. To make matters even worse, they were out of range with every tracking station, well and truly alone, and unable to verify if the instruments were correct. After making this quick survey, Scott reported to Armstrong, Neil, we're turning. Armstrong wasted no time in responding. A short burst from the Gemini's thrusters brought the roll to a halt, but as soon as he let up on them, it started again. 
Immediately, Armstrong remembered Lovell's warning issued earlier, that the Agena's attitude system might not be working properly. He set to work on Lovell's suggested solution, commanding the Agena's attitude control system to shut down. The spinning ceased. With that issue ostensibly resolved, Armstrong and Scott moved on to their next set of tasks. The engineers on the ground were interested to see what sort of forces could be exerted on two docked spacecraft. What sort of dynamic loads could they withstand? But just as they were about to execute a maneuver to test as much, the capsule jolted, followed shortly by a cracking sound, and then the entire assembly, Gemini and Agena, began to roll again. Though this time, the spinning accelerated at an alarming rate. With the docked spacecraft now spinning gradually faster, new forces were being exerted on both them and the two astronauts on board. If allowed to continue unfettered, the two spacecraft could be ripped apart, or the astronauts could lose consciousness. Armstrong set to work on the problem by firing the Gemini's thrusters counter to the direction of the spin. But now their propellant stocks were bleeding away at a prodigious rate, suggestive that the problem was not in the Agena's attitude system, but rather on the Gemini's. Armstrong and Scott both tried to deactivate the Gemini's thrusters and then reactivate to clear the problem, but still the spin persisted. With no way to know for sure what was the cause of the problem, Scott and Armstrong opted to decouple from the Agena and back away from it. Demonstrating remarkable presence of mind in a perilous situation, Scott turned over control of the Agena back to ground control before they separated, allowing Mission Control to exert command over it after they were released. Scott hit the emergency release, and Armstrong simultaneously fired a long burst from the thrusters, liberating the Gemini from the Agena and pushing it back and away from it. But now that the Agena was no longer mated to another spacecraft, and its mass was reduced by almost half, the spin's rate of acceleration nearly doubled. There could be no doubt. The malfunction was on the Gemini, not the Agena. But now the situation was deteriorating even faster, as the lone Gemini was being spun around like a veritable centrifuge. To make matters even worse, the decoupling had imparted a tumbling motion to the capsule, summoning up a whole new cocktail of malignant forces to act on the spacecraft and its crew. On the ground, the tracking ship Coastal Sentry was steaming just off of Okinawa, waiting for the Gemini to drift into radio range. When it did appear overhead, they had a difficult time locking on to the stream of telemetry the capsule beamed earthward. A strange pattern was developing, the stream appearing and then disappearing in turn. Jim Fucci, the Sentry's Capcom, sent up to the capsule. Gemini 8, Coastal Sentry Capcom. Communication check. Can you hear me? Dave Scott replied. We have a serious problem here. We're tumbling end over end and have an additional fast roll component. Increasing. Horror set in on the coastal century as they realized what was playing out overhead. Jim Fucci reported to Houston. The crew have undocked. They're rolling 360 degrees per second. Orbital fuel is down to 20%. Armstrong further reported that his attempts at deactivating the capsule's systems had been in vain. 
By this point, Scott and Armstrong were hovering on the brink of unconsciousness as they continued to spin, watching their fuel reserves dwindle with each passing second. Something had to be done, and it had to be done quickly, or they'd be lost. Armstrong switched off the power supply to the orbital thrusters and switched on the reentry thrusters instead. He then tried to use the manual thruster control to counter the rotation, but nothing happened. Scott attempted to use his, but still there was no effect. The manual controls were still dialed to the orbital thrusters. More switches were thrown, and Armstrong grabbed the hand controller, undoubtedly relieved when the thrusters outside fired and the spin began to slow. Gradually, their spin dissipated until it was gone completely, and Gemini 8 was stable once again. But the spacecraft was now dangerously low on fuel. The orbital system was almost entirely depleted, and much of the fuel intended for use on reentry was also gone. It was obvious to everyone involved with the mission that it would have to be cut short. There would be no EVA, and there would be no more experimentation with the docked vehicles. Mission Director Gene Krantz ordered the capsule to return home immediately. They would have an open corridor down to the Western Pacific shortly. They were going to come down between Okinawa and Japan, within radio range of the Coastal Century, Rosenot, and the control station in Hawaii. There was only one naval vessel in that area, though the destroyer USS Leonard F. Mason, and it made all speed for the intended landing site as soon as the word came down that they would have to see to recovery operations. The re-entry sequence began over Central Africa, and then the Gemini entered the atmosphere over China. It streaked earthward, enjoying a smooth re-entry before it splashed down into the ocean just shy of 11 hours after leaving the Earth. A rescue plane dispatched from Okinawa was the first on the scene, and divers from that plane were able to affix a flotation collar around the capsule until it could be properly recovered. The Agena managed to remain aloft for a couple more days. Because Mission Control had authority over it again, the Agena team were able to continue issuing commands, sending over 5,000 before the Agena finally gave out. It was a good test of the system, and it proved that the Agena, once in space, could perform quite well. A test that was only facilitated by Dave Scott's quick thinking. Gemini 8 marked the first real emergency of Project Gemini. Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott were in very real peril once their capsule began to spin. The cause of the faults was eventually identified as an electrical short, which had stuck a fuel valve into the open position, causing it to fire ceaselessly. But Scott and Armstrong had both performed remarkably well. They had neither one panicked, putting their test pilot skills to full use as they worked to solve the problem. Under extreme pressure, both physical and mental, they managed to stay cool and find a solution to a very dire problem. I'm sure it will come as no shock to any of you that Neil Armstrong would go on to command Apollo 11 for the first moon landing, but fewer of you will probably be aware that Dave Scott would also become an Apollo commander, leading Apollo 15 when it touched down on the moon later. I can't help but think that it was likely this mission that saw both of those men selected for their later positions. 
They had both proven beyond doubt that they could respond to a crisis in space quickly and efficiently. Who better to command a long mission to as remote a destination as the moon? Mission Control were much less pleased with their own performance, though. Gene Krantz, in his debriefing on the mission, explained that the ground crews had performed well under pressure, but that Mission Control as a whole had failed in the planning and preparation phase. He argued that the crew had not been properly trained for the mission, and that they had not properly understood that when two spacecraft are docked together, they must be treated as one spacecraft. One integrated system, rather than two. He writes in his memoir that that was the most valuable lesson learned from Gemini 8. But even though Gemini 8 was cut short, it had still achieved its primary goal. Two spacecraft had been successfully docked together, and the next great obstacle on the road to Apollo had been overcome. Next time, we're going to take another break from Gemini and switch our focus to the Soviet Union. It's been a while since we've checked up on OKB-1 and Sergei Kurilov, but early 1966 saw a tragedy strike the Soviet space program that rocked it to its core, and may well have altered the course of history to an appreciable degree. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and leave it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Thank you.